The art world gathers at the Javits Center this September 8th through 10th for one of the most anticipated cultural events of the fall, the Armory Show, New York's Art Fair. Enjoy priority booking. Buy your tickets today at thearmoryshow.com. Welcome to the Harper's Magazine podcast. I'm Christopher Bea, the editor of Harper's Magazine. In this week's episode, Harper's deputy editor, John Baskin, speaks with Adam Kirsch about his essay on Zadie Smith and the Gen X novel in the September issue. Uh, When I was working on this piece and I I would mention sort of Gen X lit or Gen X art to people, a lot of the time, the first thing they would think of is what you bring up in your first section, the films and and music and literature that actually came out in the 1990s. So you mentioned... um, you know, the Gen X canon had been firmly established by the mid-90s. You described Nirvana's Nevermind, which came out in 1991, the movie Reality Bites in 1994, Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill in 1995, and later, of course, Infinite Jest um, in 1996, the David Foster Wallace novel. And I'm curious what gave you the thought of doing a piece that was not about Gen X lit in that sense, or that was partly about it, but that was also about the cohort of writers that, as you describe, actually kind of came of age into that world, that cultural world, and then have produced much of their work um, in the 2000s and the 2010s. Um, What made you sort of start thinking of that as a distinct cohort that you wanted to write about? Well, I was born in 1976. So so when I'm writing about these writers who were born in the 70s and emerged in, in sort of after the year 2000, I feel like I'm writing about my contemporaries. And as I've gotten older, I've started to think more in terms of what we have in common. I think when I was young, in college and after college, I sort of resisted the Generation X label. I felt like it didn't really say anything about me or to me. And um, it's it, it seemed sort of external in a way. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that simply by virtue of being born at the same time and growing up with some of the same historical and pop cultural uh, reference points that people of the same age do have certain things in common that even people just a few years older or younger don't in the same way. And I've noticed this in literature. I've noticed that that writers, contemporary fiction writers who I particularly like, or I feel like are speaking to me or speaking my language in some way often turn out to be people who were young Gen Xers like me, uh, born in the 1970s or maybe even early 80s, and that there are certain things that these writers have in common. So what I wanted to do in this article is is talk about this younger half, maybe you could call it, of Generation X, and some of the things that that shaped these writers and that I personally like about them and, and find appealing. So let's maybe get into that. So you you sort of talk about in the piece the Wallace and Eggers and and Elizabeth Wurzel category of writers, and you talk about what they have in common and them being defined by a certain kind of um, a certain kind of faith in art to deal with the sort of consumerist atomization of culture uh, that was seen as sort of the major problem in the 1990s. What do you see as as defining the literary sensibility of this of this cohort that you that is that is sort of part of your age group, and how do you see it as being forged in response to that earlier or more canonical a group of Gen X writers? Well, I think when I was in sort of in the 1990s, late 90s, um, 
in, in college and just after college, when some of these writers were making their debuts, the older Gen X writers that you mentioned, like David Foster Wallace and Dave Eggers and Elizabeth Wurzel, it seemed like the thing that they were criticized for at the time was being very uh, autobiographical or, or self-revealing or memoiristic in a way that maybe they hadn't earned yet because they were so young. And that was particularly true of people like Eggers and Wurzel who were actually writing memoirs. But uh, with Wallace, I think there's some of that too, the sense that he's sort of taking up too much space, too much attention, um, writing too much about himself and his experiences. And all of these writers did it in a very sort of self-consciously uh, exaggerated way. Uh, they they used language in a theatrical, exaggerated way to draw attention to themselves. And I, at the time, you know, I felt like that that didn't seem like my style. It didn't seem like what I was interested in. And it did seem uh, somewhat foreign to me. And as I've gotten older and seen how these somewhat younger Gen X writers have approached writing about themselves, I've, I feel like you can see a pattern where they're going about it very differently in a much more ironic and ambiguous way. And the fact that autofiction appeals so much to writers of that cohort, people who are now, say, in their 40s or approaching 50, um, I, I think is a sort of reaction against this memoir boom, this this sort of self-glorifying writing of the 1990s. Because in autofiction, which you see in writers like Sheila Hetty or Ben Lerner or Leif Bataman, there's a close identification with the self. And, and clearly, these writers are writing about themselves in some way. But they're not claiming to be telling the truth about themselves in the way that you do in a memoir. They're doing something more slippery and sort of hard to categorize and get a hold of. And I think that one thing that that allows is it allows them to be a, a lot darker, less likable, um, more aloof in certain ways, so that instead of sort of uh, rushing up to the reader and, and getting them in a bear hug and saying, this is who I am and please love me, which I think is a, a sense that I often get from David Foster Wallace, uh, these younger writers are a lot more uh, complex and ironic and elusive. And I feel like that that speaks to me in a certain way. And I feel like it might be some generational thing. Uh, having grown up with these older writers getting a lot of attention by doing their thing, that younger writers had to sort of swerve in a different direction. Yeah, there is this way hearing you talk just, it, it really, I mean, that that image of sort of wanting to give you a bear hug and convince you what a good person they are. It really is central to the experience of reading writers like Eggers or Wallace. They were quite obsessed with this question of sort of making clear to you that they weren't a fraud, that they were that they were sincere in what they were doing and figuring out formally even trying to make it sort of overcome the barrier between reader and writer in some kind of way. Definitely. And Jonathan Franzen is another example, although his style is not quite the same. It's more sort of traditionally realistic, um, he definitely has written about literature in this way that makes clear, including in, in a famous essay in Harper's, that it's about uh, conquering loneliness. It's about forging connection between people. And I talk a, a little bit about you know the magazine The Believer or McSweeney's, which was a Dave Eggers project. Um, and, and you could even trace it further. One thing I didn't talk about in the article is, is Eggers's later work. And for example, his book Zaytun, which is an attempt to literally sort of tell the story of someone else, uh, uh, like a Syrian man living in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and sort of entering into his point of view in this very earnest way that sort of like saying, see, there's, we're not really different. Uh, we, we are all facing the same challenges. And 
there's no reason why I, as Dave Eggers, can't tell this person's story and that it's an important story for you to hear. There's something political about that and something uh, socially idealistic about it, but there's also something very overbearing about it. It's it's like saying, I am not going to let other people tell their stories. I'm sort of going to sort of tell it for them. Um, and I think that with autofictional writers, there's this great skepticism that you can even tell your own story, honestly, in, in, a, in a real way. Uh, that authenticity is something that's much harder to capture than maybe some of these older writers thought it was. Yeah, I mean, I want to underscore that point from your essay because I found it so interesting the way you talked about autofiction, which I think in a sort of shallow way is often dismissed for a certain kind of narcissism. Um, but you write in the piece that that for these writers, autofiction was an antidote to the grandiosity of memoir by admitting from the outset that it is not telling the truth about an author's life. Autofiction makes it possible to emphasize the moral ambiguities that memoir has to apologize or hide. Um, I thought that was really interesting and, and thinking about the James Fry thing and, and the way that writers like Wurzel were sometimes seen as sort of overly confessional um, and seeing autofiction as in some ways a step back from that. Um, I guess one question it did leave for me though is, why wouldn't a response to the memoir simply be to go and write novels again or, or, or write, you know, and, and in some way, maybe Zadie, maybe this is a bridge to Zadie Smith because for her, uh, she hasn't so much embraced autofiction, although she does have a, a strong canon of essays, which are often quite personal, but, but she has in her, in her fiction um, gone more of a novelistic route than some of these other writers. That's definitely true. I mean, thinking just for a minute about the, the confessional aspect one way that I sort of started thinking about this was by reading and thinking about the confessional poets uh, mm. of the 1960s and 70s, and in particular, poets like Robert Lowell and John Berryman, who I, I love and I love their work. Um, but you can see in some of their later work that as soon as they start to write about themselves as themselves, there's this sort of feedback loop. Like, like a shrieking microphone, where it's just impossible to write about yourself in a way that doesn't sound self-justifying or self-defensive. So, for example, when Lowell is writing in, in The Dolphin about leaving his wife for another woman, there's this sort of special pleading that enters in and a falseness of tone, which I think is really in inescapable if you're writing about yourself, especially if you're doing it in the moment. Um, you're not waiting for time to pass or for it to become part of history, but you're sort of trying to communicate what you're living through as you live through it. Autofiction allows you to sort of have the best of both worlds. A lot of these writers have personas who have names that are sort of obviously based on their own names, but somewhat different. So like Elif Bachman's character is called Celine, and uh, Ben Lerner's character is called Adam Gordon, and Tao Lin has a character named Lee. And all of these characters are sort of transparently about themselves and share a lot of things biographically with the authors. But by using a different name, it's as if they're saying, I'm, I'm reserving the right to not tell you the whole story or not tell you the literal truth of what happened, but to sort of experiment and, and play with my identity uh, and, and talk about myself in a non-straightforward way. And it leaves you a little bit in the lurch. It's disorienting for the reader because you don't always know exactly where you are. Am I reading about something that really happened? Am I reading a sort of later distortion of it? Um, to go back to Zadie Smith, it's definitely true that of all the writers I talk about in the essay, Zadie Smith is, is sort of a sui generis in, in a number of ways. One way is that she became famous very young. Her first novel, White Teeth, came out in the when she was 24, I believe, in the year 2000. And so 
chronologically, she often seems like she belongs to this older Gen X cohort of people who were making their name around that time, like Eggers, whose book came out at the same time. But because she was so young, she's actually more the age of these other people that I'm talking about, people born in the 70s. And she has this very strong uh, gift for and attraction to uh, sort of traditional comic realism in storytelling, which I think a lot of writers her age don't have. And part of that, I think, must have to do with being British and being very immersed in Dickens, uh, as she's written about, including recently in The New Yorker, growing up reading a lot of Dickens and feeling like that is a mode in which she can tell the stories that she wants to tell. American literature, I think, has never been quite as comfortable in that kind of comic social realism because we're we don't occupy all the same reality in a certain way. Um, and American literature, even even back to the 19th century, is much more personal and individual and often strange and eccentric. But Zadie Smith is is often, I think, maybe even to a degree that she doesn't like, held up as a generational standard bearer because I think she emerged so young and has been famous for a long time and because she's one of the best writers of her generation. And people often talk about her in terms of you know, where is literature going or what's the next step for, for young writers or now middle-aged writers. Um, I don't think that she is leading the way in quite that sense because I think a lot of other writers her age are doing things differently. And, and even among the writers, the English writers who Americans are learning from, Rachel Cuss would probably be a lot more important as an influence than Zadie Smith. But I do think that in a sort of parallel track, she's dealing with a number of the same issues that these autofiction writers are dealing with. And in particular, in this newest novel of hers, The Fraud, she is clearly talking about questions of identity. Um, at the center of this novel is a, a real historical episode about a man who claimed to be the heir to an aristocratic fortune, even though he wasn't. And it became a polarizing political issue in England at the time, is whether you were for or against this man who became known as the claimant. And in writing about this, she's writing about things that have come up in her fiction really since the beginning. Things like, is it my job to be politically virtuous as a writer, or am I supposed to be telling some other kind of truth? Is there some sort of artistic mission that is uh, at some remove from political virtue? And I think that she, as an old-fashioned humanist in some ways, believes that. We've been talking about the difference between older and younger Gen X writers. If you were to look at the difference between younger Gen X writers and the writers younger than them, people who are now in their 20s and 30s, I think those writers are much more political um, much more interested in serving a political and social cause in their writing. People of this peculiar Gen X cohort, which I feel uh, drawn to for this reason as well, I think want more of a separation between art and justice, between art and politics. And that tension has been a big one in Zadie Smith's work all along. Yeah. So I just, just to sort of, you, you gave a pretty good summary of the novel, but just to say, so the fraud is, um, it's a historical novel and it's narrated by a, by a housekeeper and a progressive abolitionist, uh, or we would call her progressive today, uh, named Eliza Touche, who becomes invested in this famously controversial court case in England in the 1870s. The case concerns uh, a man named, a man who claims to be Roger Tickborn, uh, an aristocrat who is believed to have died on a shipwreck, but who is, but, uh, and has a fortune that, that he obviously wants, but Many people suspect the man of just being of being Arthur Orton, a butcher who had emigrated from Australia. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, you said a little bit about it, but what do you think sort of drew Smith particularly to this story um, in relation to this this Gen X sensibility that you've laid out? Well, one thing about the book is that in a very clever and insightful way, it's clearly a story about politics now while being set in England in the 1870s. So it, again, it's this thing where she's writing about herself and about her own experience and our common experience in the world right now, but not head on, not straightforwardly. She's not writing about Boris Johnson or Donald Trump, but what she's dealing with is a situation that both in real life and because of the way that she writes about it becomes an analog. So the way she tells the story is that Arthur Orton is a um, working class man who pretends to be an aristocrat and demands that he be allowed to inherit this fortune because he says that he is this lost Roger Tichborne. And what's strange about it and, and what sort of interests the novel about it is that this becomes a working class rallying cry, a man who's saying, I'm wealthy and privileged, um, but I'm your spokesman. I'm, I'm a tribune for the people and everyone who feels that injustice has been done to them or that the system is rigged against them. I'm going to sort of fight on your behalf. So that's an obvious uh, Donald Trump stand-in. And the way that that Smith writes about how the court case divides society and the way that journalists write about it and the way it creates tension within the household of Eliza Touche, the main character. All of these things are very familiar to us from the politics of the last five years, from things like Brexit or the 2020 election uh, or even COVID restrictions. There are things where uh, a political issue or a cultural flashpoint divides people in these very profound ways what what Smith is particularly writing about in The Fraud is someone like Eliza Touche, who is a lot like what most readers of The Fraud would probably like to imagine themselves as, right? She's enlightened. Um, she's liberal. She was an early abolitionist. Uh, and, and the main action of the story takes place after the abolition of slavery in England and America. But she sort of looks back on that as this fight that defined her. And she looks at the claimant and says, this guy's obviously a fraud and I don't understand why anyone could believe him. And in doing so, she finds that there are all kinds of people, including people in her own household, who think that that's incredibly uh, arrogant and condescending and revile her for it and opens up this division that she didn't really know was there and puts her on the side, not of the people, which is where she'd always thought she was, but of some kind of elite. Uh, some kind of educated liberal elite. And that dynamic is, of course, exactly the dynamic that we've been living through both in Britain and America over the last decade. So I think that it's really a, a very ingenious way of writing about the present without writing directly about the present. Because again, similarly to writing about yourself, once you say, I'm writing a novel about the year 2023 and Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, everything that's happening now, it becomes very hard to write about it in any kind of sophisticated or, or complex or ambiguous way because there's a strong demand that you take sides because you're fighting a fight. Whereas if you step back and make it an alternative reality, uh, in this case, something in the past, you can make more of an effort to sort of see all the way around the subject. Uh, and that's something that she does very well in the novel. Yeah. I mean, in an interesting way, there's a way that doing a, a historical novel it serves some of the purpose that the autofiction does for some of those other writers, maybe, and giving her some distance and being able to sort of, yeah, like you say, see around the topic. Yeah. So you home in in the novel uh, or in your review on an exchange that Eliza Touche has with a younger character toward the end of the novel uh, who sort of accuses her of um, 
privileging open-mindedness and understanding, uh, trying to understand the topic from every angle, the way that Smith herself might uh, pride herself on doing as a novelist. He accuses her of doing these, privileging these things over the fight for truth and justice. And he kind of says, look, there's, you know, there's a battle going on. This is a black character. Um, there's, there's, you know, colonialism and racism and economic injustice. And, and, you know, you're wasting your time thinking about this, these, these intellectual matters. Um, and um, as you point out, the exchange sort of calls to mind the generational challenge that many Gen X writers have had from the millennials over their supposed political quietism or hesitancy. Um, and I, I wonder, you, you talk a bit about how you see Smith dealing with this challenge in, in the review. Um, you've sort of already said a bit about that, but I wonder if you see distinctions within this Gen X cohort between the different writers you talk about. You, you talk about Ben Lerner and Teju Cole and uh, Sheila Hetty, among others in the piece. And if you see some distinctions about the different ways that they've dealt with this challenge, because I definitely agree with you that they've all felt it in some way, this sort of political challenge from the younger generation. But I don't know if they've all dealt with it in the same way. It's a good question and uh, sort of an interesting thing to think about the different expressions this can take. I think of all of the writers that I talk about, Ben Lerner is the one who seems most conscious of this duty to be political or to serve social good um, in his novels. And he speaks the language of a, a kind of academic progressivism very deftly. It's in a way, it's sort of his natural idiom, um, certainly in his fiction, but even to a certain extent in his poetry. But the way he does it is very interesting because the characters who are voicing the sort of academic progressive pieties um, are often these ridiculous, ineffective characters who are comic, uh, co characters sort of based on him, like in Leaving the Atocha Station or in uh, the, the Topeka School. They talk, they sort of say all the right things about, uh, for example, uh, Occupy Wall Street or uh, gentrification, things like things that, that people in this group think about and talk about. But it always is in a, in a very sort of ineffectual, uh, verbal way. And you get the sense that he is trying to assuage his own conscience more than actually doing anything in the world. And I think that's deliberate on Lerner's part. I think that he's showing that if you start from the point of view of an aesthete or an artist, it's very hard to work your way from there to some kind of real political effectiveness. You end up getting trapped in language and, and in ideas before you ever break through to society. And I think that that tension is one of the interesting themes of his work that he writes about in various ways. Sheila Hetty and Tao Lin, to me, are were interesting examples because although they are very different in terms of their personal experiences and, and probably their personalities, although I don't I don't know any of the people that I'm talking about here personally, they sort of converge on very similar, almost mystical ideas in their recent work, which is that the only way to change society for the better would be some cosmic renewal, sort of the end of the current world order and the beginning of something that we can hardly imagine and that this would have to take place on the level of God or the spirit. It's not in the sense of political progress or uh, we're going to change society, but the title of, of Talin's most recent novel is Leave Society, which I thought was a, a really interesting example of what we're talking about here. The, the impulse to leave society rather than trying to improve society uh, is also a very old American impulse, right? That's the impulse with Thoreau uh, of going into the woods and, and sort of starting anew. And for Tao Lin in, in this novel, it's a sort of message that 
his main character, his alter ego, receives during a drug trip, and he develops this sort of crazy but somehow also powerful theory that the world is going through a, a transition and what we all need to do is leave society and burrow into our own sort of spiritual selves in order to allow the world to be reborn. So I think that obviously anyone who has lived through the last decades has, has seen terrible and traumatic events um, in the United States and worldwide and has been living for years with this sense of crisis, of urgency. But for the writers that I'm I'm looking at, the way they respond to it is in a mystical, metaphysical, or ironic register rather than a register of political engagement. Right. And and then that's that's the thing that they get sometimes criticized for by the next generation, which seems um I mean, one one way I found myself thinking about it, it thinking about the schema in your piece is you you have the nineties, the Eggers Wallace uh Wurzel writers who have this sort of they're not very political in any direct sense, but they have this deep faith in art uh, to heal the problems that they're worried about in society. Then the Gen X cohort uh, that you're writing about has this kind of distanced relation to art, but they're, they're sort of interested in the relationship between art and politics. Um, they have some skepticism about art, but also skepticism of the full political turn. And then the next generation, the millennials, I wonder if you think there's almost such a high level of skepticism about art that many of them are comfortable sort of turning art into a, a political tool, instrumentalizing it toward political ends. And some of them even just become essayists. Yeah. I mean, I think that this might be another thing to explore because I haven't read around as much and I'm not as familiar with the younger writers as I am with these writers that I talk about. But I do think that that's an unmistakable dynamic. You see it in all kinds of ways. And I've, I've seen... Uh, even talking about some people who I don't mention the piece and who aren't fiction writers, uh, I see writers of my generation. I'm thinking of people like Megan Daum or um, William Dreisowitz, as they get older, becoming more culturally conservative in a certain way, as though they're they're saying the things that we valued about culture, uh, about literature and art, are no longer valued by the younger generation because they see it as too ambiguous to be useful. Um, and wanting to preserve those that, those ambiguities uh, against the demand of usefulness. So I do think that, that maybe this is a pendulum that swings back and forth. A lot of what's going on now uh, echoes things that were going on in the 1920s and 30s when, mm-hmm. again, in the 30s, a major political crisis, and a lot of young writers arose who were Marxists or, or sympathizers with communism and thought that the modernism of the 1920s was just for esthetes and it wasn't doing anything to change the world or to solve its problems. Uh, And then, you know, eventually the pendulum swings back. But I do get a strong sense that over the last 10 years, there has been this generational division. And that's one of the things I wanted to write about in the essay. Yeah, I was going to ask you sort of how you've how how that generational division or this swing uh, has affected you as a literary critic. I mean, you've you've been doing literary criticism for a long time, and so um, I'm, yeah, I'm sort of curious how you felt how how you felt some of the pressures that you talk about with these novelists um, as a critic. Well, because of the kinds of things I write about, I seldom am writing directly about current political issues, and I'm able to sort of. When, even if there's a political application, it's usually sort of at a second or third remove by writing about history or something in the past or a work of art. So I don't feel as much pressure to get involved in current cultural debates. One thing that I've sort of felt more consciously over the last few years is a desire not to get involved in those <laughs> debates and to sort of take a step back 
to turn off social media, which is something that I'm glad I did. Uh, sort of not not read Twitter, not look at what everyone is fighting about and getting angry about, but try to to think about things in a more slow and and detached uh, way or or a slower tempo. Because I think that politics uh, being so supercharged as it is right now. Um, it's very easy to turn everything into an occasion for rehearsing the same political divisions and debates. I think that is a temptation on both the left and the right. You see it, you can see it on both sides. And maybe this is, again, an expression of this 1970s uh, spirit of, of trying to avoid both of those sides and, and to try to think about things in some less uh, immediately engaged way. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And and yeah, you have that power partly as a critic by what you decide to focus on too. Right, exactly. So this is sort of my last question, but it's just sort of taking a step back. I, I was thinking about your review appears in the same issue as Justin Smith's essay, um, My Generation, which is also about Gen X um, in this issue of Harper's. And Justin makes the case that Gen X has been somewhat of a forgotten generation in the culture at large, that in some way it's sort of been passed over, uh, that, that a lot of the culture seems to be more of a, a food fight between the boomers and the millennials, and um, that Gen, the Gen X sensibility, at least he's feeling um, in, in his own uh, mid to late 40s, is sort of no longer central culturally, or, or, if it, it, or, or was only central for a short time. Um, I wonder, from what you've seen so far, um, if you think this, this cohort of writers that you've written about... Uh, if they do or will have the cultural relevance that Wallace, Wurzel, Franzen, and Eggers had in the 90s, um, or for that matter, that perhaps a younger writer like Sally Rooney might have on the other side, um, what what do you see as sort of the place in the culture of these of these writers? Well, it did occur to me as I was writing this piece that the writers that I'm writing about, although I think all of them have a high literary reputation, except for Smith, none of them are very popular. Um, they're not they're not the kinds of writers who probably hit bestseller lists and sell a lot of copies. They they have more prestige than popularity. And I think that in a way, Gen X as a whole does seem to be passed over in a lot of ways. I mean, one, one thing that people have talked about is that there doesn't look like there will ever be a Gen X president um, that will go straight from one generation to sort of skip to the next generation. People now in their thirties, um, will become president and that there will never be, you know, someone of the generation grew up the way that, you know, people did in the seventies won't become president. And I think that maybe there's some connection there. If, if there's a lack of ideological zeal um, that might explain why representative of that generation is not winning as much attention or as much acclaim. Um, and I think that maybe the writers that I'm writing about are not, unhappy with that situation. I think that they like the idea of being slightly off to one side and expressing themselves as fully and accurately as they can, uh, making that the priority rather than winning a large audience or sort of affecting the course of society. Um, and I think that even if you go back to the, as, as we started with looking at the pop culture of the early 90s of Gen X, so much of it is about this sort of sullenness and resistance to getting involved in things or defiance um, and kind of intentional, maybe exaggerated dumbness even in, in some ways, that that spirit maybe even over decades and, and as we get older and, and assume different roles in life, something of that remains and the desire to sort of be a Bartleby and, and say no rather than yes is is maybe that's what Gen X will be remembered for. 
You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.